Titus chapter 2, that's found on page 844 on the Pew Bible. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. At one time we were too foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Saviour, appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, because I have decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos the law, lawyer and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. 
in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love, you, love us in the faith. Grace be with all of you. I sometimes find it interesting to watch interviews on television uh, where the interviewer strays away from the normal topics that people get interviewed about, which is normally entertainment and politics, and uh, asks uh, high-profile people questions about, about God and about what they think about God. I remember seeing an interview like that on television a few years ago with a high-profile politician in Australia, and uh, he was a man who, rightly or wrongly, and I don't know whether you can believe what the media says about people, but rightly or wrongly, he had a reputation for being a very, a very hard man, a man who lacked compassion for um, uh, underprivileged people, and a man who was tainted with corruption or tainted by corruption. But when he answered questions about God... I simply couldn't fault him. He talked about uh, Jesus being God. He talked about uh, Jesus dying on the cross to pay for his sins. He talked about resurrection, forgiveness and eternal life. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, he has just ticked all the right boxes. And I remember feeling somewhat encouraged that this uh, man who I'd known about as a politician seemed to understand the gospel but at the same time, it left me feeling uh, somewhat uneasy because if at least half, the, half of what the media had said about him over his political career was correct, then it seemed that, uh, uh, you know, that, that Christian belief was sort of packed away in one box in his life, but uh, the way that he lived his life seemed to be in a different box altogether. I think this is important because as we consider what it means to be healthy Christians and to be a healthy church, then this is an issue that we need to grapple with because we can sometimes split our lives up into different boxes. Uh, we might have, for example, the theology box of life, uh, which is you know what we believe about God. Uh, we might have, you know the way we live our life kind of box. And I, I suggest that sometimes we can also have a separate evangelism box, you know, what, what we think it means to actually witness an impact uh, on our community. Now, in Titus 2 and 3, which would be good for you to have open in front of you, the, the healthy Christian life, indeed the life of a healthy church, is nothing like that whatsoever. Uh, what we see here is that there are no separate boxes. That what we believe about God, how we live our lives, and the impact that we have on non-Christians, uh, it's all packed into the same box. Uh, there are no separate boxes. Last week we were introduced to Titus. Uh, if you weren't with us last week, Titus was one of Paul's fellow workers and he served the church on the island of Crete. Uh, the, the church in Crete was not exactly what you would say was a, a picture of, uh, of great health. It was an unhealthy church. Uh, Cretan people had a bad reputation in the ancient world. Uh, they had a reputation for being uh, always liars, 
evil brutes and lazy gluttons. Uh, the Greek word for liar came from the word, the word for Cretan. Uh, the two were synonymous. And so when Cretan people became Christians, there was always some big changes that needed to take place in their lives. And that's what this letter from Paul to Titus is all about. It's a letter about change. It's a letter about helping Christians who have come from a non-Christian background to become healthy Christians. It's about growing a healthy church. Now, Titus was the man on the ground in Crete. Uh, Last week, we saw in chapter 1 that Titus was to appoint godly men to be elders, to be leaders over the church in Crete. And that was imperative because the problem is when you don't appoint leaders, then you get self-appointed leaders. And uh, that was happening in Crete, that there were some self-appointed leaders who had... uh, basically were getting a foothold and these people were ruining people's lives. They were ruining people's spiritual lives because they were teaching things that they ought not to teach. Now what we see in chapter 2 verse 1 is that Titus was to do the exact opposite to that. Uh, Chapter 2 verse 1 in the original starts with the word but or however, so he's contrasting Titus with these uh, false teachers who had emerged. And he says to Titus, if you have a look at it, but you, on the other hand, must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Now, I want to ask the question, what does he mean by doctrine? Because I think that, uh, well, you know, when I think of doctrine, I think of things like a doctrinal statement, Uh, something like the Westminster Confession of Faith, or I think of some big, thick, heavy, you know, weighty, you know, book written in very complicated language, uh, which is called, you know, a book of doctrine. And uh, I think that that may be something which you might think of doctrine as well. But, uh, and if that's the case, if, if Titus is to teach what is in accord with sound doctrine or healthy doctrine, we might expect that what follows is simply a point form kind of summary of the essential truths of what Christians are supposed to believe. But that is not exactly what happens. Paul doesn't do that. And the reason is because doctrine means teaching. That's what it means. And he's saying to Titus, you must teach sound teaching. Now, what is this sound teaching? What is it that Titus is supposed to teach? Well, that's what the rest of the letter is all about. And as we look at the rest of the letter, we'll see that there are no boxes. That theology, that is the truths that we believe about God and what he's done for us, that theology and Christian living, practical Christian living, and Christian witness, that is evangelism, that they are all integrated, that they are all packed into the same box. They are not separate entities whatsoever. However, in chapter 2, we see that Paul, whilst he doesn't divide up teaching into separate boxes, that he divides up the congregation into separate boxes or separate groups. And he does that so that Titus will teach 
the congregation relevantly. He breaks up the congregation into separate people groups based on age, gender and job. Now, let's take a look at, uh, at that. Let's take a look at why he does it and how he does it. Because firstly, in verse 2, uh, there is a few things that Titus needs to teach to the older men of the congregation. Have a look at verse 2. He says, teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and in endurance. So, uh, ladies, you can switch off for a moment. Um, this is not for you. This is for the older men of the congregation. The uh, question is, how do you define an older man? You know, is there, what's the point in which you transition from being a younger man to being an older man? Any ideas on that? I've got a, I've got a good definition of what an older man is. It's any man who's older than me, right? Uh, and the older I get, the older older men seem to get. I was you know, about 12 years ago in this church. Uh, we had another guy preaching one time, and he said to me before the service, that he said, it'll be really good for the congregation to hear a younger man preach. And that was 10 years ago. <laughs> so it's all relative. Um, look, there's stuff in here that we all need to listen to, actually. But especially older men, uh, and I think if you're someone who considers yourself to be a younger man, you really need to listen to this as well, because presumably if you are a younger man, you aim one day to be an older man, right? If you've actually uh, got your head screwed on the right way. The, the church should be able to look to the older men of the congregation uh, to be models of godliness, um, the women should be able to look to the older men for uh, leadership in godliness. The younger people should be able to look to the older men for leadership in godliness as well. So what does it mean? Well, Paul says, older men, uh, you must be temperate, which means you must be level-headed kind of people. Uh, you shouldn't simply expect to be respected because of your age. Uh, you have to actually be someone who is worth respecting. That's what he says. Older men, be worthy of respect. Uh, you need to be self-controlled. Now, self-control is something which comes up with all of the people groups here that Paul talks about. And self-controlled means to be someone who, uh, who subjugates your own desires and your own passions uh, you subjugate yourself to the will of God so that you are controlled by God's will, not by your own passions, your own emotions, your own feelings. You must be self-controlled, not someone who loses his temper very easily and not someone who gives in to temptation easily. You need to be healthy in your faith, in your love and in your endurance. So guys, we need, to be, we need to be men who are healthy in our faith. We need to be men who are serious about understanding uh, the teaching of the Bible and to being committed 
to, uh, to implementing the teaching of the Bible in every aspect of our lives. This is not for wimps. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is a very uh, difficult thing to be doing. Uh, but that's what we need to be doing as older men. It's countercultural, isn't it? I mean, in our own culture, so often it's the woman who's the spiritual leader in the family and in the household. Well, that's wrong. It's the responsibility of the older men to be the leaders uh, in their relationships with their wives, in their relationships with their children, in their relationships uh, within the church. Uh, we are to, we, we're to step up to the plate. Uh, we are to be the ones who are the models of godliness, not the ones who are led by the younger people and by the, and by the, by the women. Now, uh, it also means, Paul says here, that we are to be sound in endurance, which means that we're not to be guys who drop the ball Christianly when life gets tough, when we're faced by challenges and, uh, and disappointments. You need to keep on trusting in Jesus. You need to keep on acting in love for the benefit of other people for the benefit of the women, for the benefit of the younger people, for the benefit of the children, irrespective of the difficulties and the challenges of life. And that's why you will be respected. <laughs> Respect is something which is earned. It's not something which comes naturally. And that is also why you'll be helpful to others. But there's stuff here for the women as well. So, blokes, you can switch off, read the bulletins for a while. Uh, what about the women? In verses 3 to 5, we're told that the older women are to teach the younger women in the church to be godly. Now, they say, and I think it's true, that you cannot give away something which you yourself don't have. And that means that the older women need uh, themselves to be serious about godliness. They need to be godly. Now, Paul just mentions a couple of things there. He says that they're not to be slanderers. Um, so, you know, women ought not to be people who go around saying things about other people uh, that aren't true or are not helpful. Uh, malicious talk, that sort of thing, uh, is, is not on for, uh, for Christian women. They're not to be addicted to wine. That may have been a particular problem in Crete. But it's relevant for us as well. Again, that's that issue of self-control. What happens when you're addicted to... What, what happens when you're drunk? You lose control, don't you? It's the, it's, the, it's the exact opposite of what God wants for us. But notice that the, the kind of godliness that the older women are to teach to the younger woman, notice what it involves. Uh, the NIV says that they are to teach them to love their husbands and their children. I think it's actually a bit starker than that in the original because what, what it says in the original is that the older women are to teach the younger women to be lovers, to be lovers of their husbands and to be lovers of their children. It's a slightly different nuance, isn't it? I think it's a, it's a little bit, bit uh, sharper uh, when you look at it that way. It's not... It's not a doing thing, it's a, it's a being thing. They are to be taught to be lovers of their husbands, to be lovers of their children. That's sometimes harder for younger women 
when you're uh, struggling with the, uh, the stresses and the pressures in relationships uh, with your husband. Uh, uh, sometimes I've known of uh, you know women who actually go around talking down their husbands and and not respecting them and so on. Well, it's the responsibility of the older women to teach the younger women to love their husbands. Same goes when, when, when you've got, a, got, got an arm full of children. It's hard sometimes not to be negative about your children and to be critical about your children or critical towards them. And it's then that the younger women need the older women of the church to help them and to teach them to, uh, to actually be lovers of their children and to be busy, to be self-controlled, to be pure, busy at home, and subject to their husbands. Now, wow, that's countercultural, isn't it? To be subject to your husband, but it's what the Bible teaches. Uh, in other parts of the Bible, in Colossians uh, 3, in uh, Ephesians 5, I think it is, that uh, the husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, but the wife is to, uh, uh, is, is to submit herself to the husband in the same way that the church submits herself to Christ. This is God's ordering of relationships within the home. It's countercultural. It'll mark you out as being different to the world around. But godly living has always been countercultural. Uh, it was countercultural in Crete as well. Uh, if it were not countercultural in Crete, so you see, some people say, "Well, that's easy for them. That's yeah, not relevant these days." I mean, that was, you know, true in the culture back then, but it's different now. Well, it wasn't true for them. If it was true for, you know, if the, if they were living that way already, Paul would not have had to tell Titus that they needed to change and to to live this way. I was talking to a man a few minutes ago who was born in Crete. <laughs> And he says to me, some of the Cretans are still a bit like that, <laughs> you know, very unsubmissive and, <laughs> and uh, you know, what does it say, always lies, evil brutes and lazy gluttons? He said, yep, some of them are still like that. Christian, the Christian Cretans are to be countercultural. Now, in um, verses 6 to 8, Titus is to teach the young men to be self-controlled. And what we see throughout this is that this issue of being self-controlled is something which is is actually to, uh, uh, to permeate through the whole congregation. Because back in chapter 1, verse 8, the elders, anyone who's, responsible, anyone who's qualified to be an elder, must be self-controlled. Uh, in uh, chapter 2, verse 1, the older men, you'll see, are to be self-controlled. In uh, chapter 2, verse 5, the women, older and younger, are to be self-controlled. Uh, Cretans were not known for being self-controlled. But as Christians... Our emotions, our desires, our will should be under control and should be controlled and directed by the will of God. Self-control can be a huge problem for young men, can't it? And sometimes with very tragic consequences. But young men who are self-controlled are very impressive, aren't they? Uh, when you meet a young guy who's obviously submitting his life to, to God, uh, who's um, loving and, and caring towards other people, who is uh, prepared to say no to a lot of the things that his mates are getting into, reject peer pressure, such a young man is very impressive. 
Titus was to be a young man like that. And Paul actually says to Titus that he is the guy who is to set the example for the young men of the congregation. And so he spells that out for Titus as to what that means. And Titus is to, uh, in his teaching, show integrity. Uh, He is to show seriousness and soundness of speech. Now, this is countercultural, particularly for young guys. Slaves were to be countercultural as well. In the ancient, in, in uh, verse 9, apparently there were some slaves who had been converted and become Christians. And in the ancient world, slaves did not have a great uh, long list of rights. Uh, the, in the Roman Empire, there were some legal constraints which were placed over a man in terms of the way that he treated his wife and the way that he treated his children. But as far as his slaves were, were concerned, he could do with them whatever he wanted to. That is not exactly what you would call the ideal relationship. But have a look at uh, verse 9. In chapter 2, verse 9, Titus is to teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything. Uh, that's radical stuff. You can imagine why a slave would want to rebel against his master. You would imagine why he would not want to, uh, he'd want to shirk the work. Uh, or even uh, rip his master off if he had the opportunity. But Paul says he's to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. Now, you may feel like you're a slave sometimes, but not One of us here is a slave, um, but many of us here are employed. And if you are employed, if you have a boss, this is the way that you are to be Christian, live out your Christian faith in the workplace. Uh, It is countercultural. It will sometimes put you at odds with your other workmates, but we are to be countercultural. Now, throughout this letter of Titus, there is one phrase which keeps on cropping up crops up about a half a dozen or so times, and it's the phrase, what is good? Uh, It's probably, some translations translate it more accurately as simply good works. I think that sometimes as evangelical Christians, we're afraid to use the term good works, aren't we? Uh, And the reason for that is because there's so many people, uh, you know, even in churches who've said that, you know, if you do good works, then you're going to get to heaven. And we know that that is so wrong that's so opposed to the gospel uh, that sometimes we can go too far the other way and we just don't talk about good works enough. But the uh, term good works comes up many times in this passage. For example, uh, in chapter 2, verse 7, uh, in chapter 2, verse 7, Titus is to set an example by doing what is good, uh, in the, literally by doing good works. If you go back to, if you go down to the end of the uh, the book, to chapter three, verse eight, uh, he says, "This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good." That is, uh, if we are Christians, if we are people who've trusted in the gospel then we are to be devoted, we are to be committed to doing good works. 
And what are these good works? Well, they can be none other than the very things that Paul has been talking about. Uh, it's, you know, what he's been saying to the older men, uh, to the women, to the slaves, to the younger men. Um, Paul says to Titus, we must teach our people to do good works. And he emphasises that. Now, the question is why? Uh, why should Christian men and women be countercultural? Uh, why should slaves go the extra mile and treat their masters well? Why should, they, why should you and I be countercultural? Paul gives the reason, and it's in chapter 2, verses 11 through to 14. And he starts verse 11 with the word for. Do you see that? Uh, whenever you see the word for, you know it's a connective. You know that, uh, uh, that what it's saying is what I have just said above uh, is explained by what I'm, what I'm about to say below. It's the explanation. And so he starts by saying for. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, there's that word again, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then are the things you should teach Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Now, there are, quite frankly, a couple of sermons um, that I could preach from those uh, few verses. But let me just say very briefly, summarising it, what it's saying is that the reason that, the reason that we should actually do good works is because of Jesus and the reason that Jesus died on the cross was to save us and to change us, to redeem us, he says, from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people who are eager to do good works. That's the reason. And you see, what we see here is that what we believe about God and how we live are not separate items, not at all. They are all part of the doctrine. They are in the same box. Now, the same goes for evangelism. Uh, a few years back, there was some research done where they were trying to work out what is it that attracts people to become Christians. And uh, so they didn't go out and interview a whole lot of people who have been Christians you know, for 50 years, or people who are non-Christians, what they did is they went and interviewed a whole stack of people who were Christians but who had become Christians only in the previous 12 months, right? And uh, they wanted to ask them, what was it that attracted you to become a Christian? Uh, you know, so things like, you know, was it because of a big marketing campaign that the churches did that got you in the door? Uh, was it because of a you know, fantastic sign out the front? 
Um, was it because you heard that there was great music at a particular church? All that kind of stuff. And uh, almost um, across the board, the answer to all of that was no, it was none of that. Uh, what attracted me to becoming a Christian was a person. A person whom I knew who was different. A person who was gracious, loving. A person who seemed to have it together in life a little bit, that they were, that they were self-controlled. A person who was there for me when other people weren't there for me. That's what attracted people to actually step in the door of a church for the first time and to hear the gospel. And that's what we should expect. You see, um, we see it in the text that the way that we live can have a very positive uh, impact on non-Christians or it can have a very negative impact on non-Christians. That's why in chapter 2, verse 3, that the Christian women are to be godly and have a look at the reason he gives. He says, so that no one will malign the word of God. Right? So if you professing to be a Christian but you're actually not living differently to that and people see that, then they're going to malign the word of God. They're going to reject the word that you want to preach to share with them. But in chapter 2, verse 9, uh, Christian slaves are to be godly so that, and I quote, in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. Now the phrase there, to make attractive, uh, is a phrase which means to, to, to get a whole lot of um, beautiful jewels and to, um, and to set those jewels in such a way that they make the thing which they're set on to be attractive. They beautify something. And that is what our lives do uh, in respect to the teaching of the gospel. They flesh out the teaching of the gospel. They live it out and they make it attractive. That resonates with me personally. Uh, as many of you know, I was not always a Christian. Uh, I became a Christian 30 years ago last month. How about that, eh? Um, and it was a time in my life when I met some people who were distinctly different from other people, most other people that I knew. People who were qualitatively different, people who seemed to have a level of maturity beyond their age and a degree of self-control, uh, which meant that they just did not get into a lot of the things that a lot of my peers were getting into. And I found that was attractive. I spoke to them, I, wanted, I sat down with them, I said, I want to know what it is that you guys believe. Because I knew they trotted off to church every Sunday and I knew they read their Bibles. And they were able to share the gospel with me. You see, I thought that everybody was a Christian until I met some real Christians. And uh, what a difference that made. You and I should be concerned that the way we live impacts those who don't yet know Jesus. We need to be concerned for non-Christians. Uh, in chapter 3, verse 1, have a look at this. Paul says, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, 
and to show true humility toward all men, every person, Christian and non-Christian. I think that sometimes we can get cheesed off by the way that non-Christians behave. Sometimes we can be cheesed off by how Christians behave as well, but think about non-Christians. Um, and, you know, we don't particularly feel like doing good for people. Uh, we don't think that, you know, we don't want to do it. I think about the neighbour who plays their music up way too loud, way too late at night. Think about the, uh, the boss at work who, who treats you poorly, and there's some real difficult cases there and situations that we can be in. Uh, we feel like telling the people off. Uh, that's how we feel. The question is, why should we be humble towards them, as uh, Paul says that Timothy should teach? And the reason is in verse 3 of chapter 3. He talks about at one time. Uh, and again, in the original, there is a connective there. It's the word for or because. He says, because at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Now these Cretans were probably first generation Christians. Some of them might have been the children of first generation Christians. But they were largely people who'd been converted to Christ as adults. I don't know each of your situations. It might be the case that um, you have grown up in a, a Christian household with Christian parents. It might be the case that you have uh, come to know Christ and committed yourself to him later in life. Or it might be both for you. You might have been raised in a Christian household uh, but not actually committed yourself to Christ till later on in life. There may even be people here today who have never committed themselves to Christ. Whatever your story, if you had never been taught about Jesus, but you're, then you would be living in spiritual darkness now. But in verse 4, God saved you. He didn't save you because of any good works that you had done, but rather he saved you because of his mercy in sending Jesus to die for your sins. And so, because he has treated us in that way, that is how we should view non-Christians. We should view them with humility. We should be humble towards them. We should be gracious. We should be seeking to do what is good because we know that unless Christ had worked in our lives, we would be the same as they are. And we need to have a heart, passion for their salvation. So let me ask you to think about your Christian life for a few moments. And the question is, do you have a tendency to break up your life into boxes? The theology box, the lifestyle box, the evangelism box. Think of what that looks like when we do that. Uh, it's possible for someone to be deeply committed to the great truths of the gospel, uh, to understand the grace of God, but to not treat other people with grace. 
to blend in so well with the pagan culture around that you become indistinguishable from it, that you share its values, its priorities, its lifestyle, its way of treating others. So much so that when people find out that you believe the gospel, like the politician I saw interviewed on television, they're surprised to hear that, even perhaps shocked. The church in Crete was unhealthy. Cretans were known as being always liars, evil brutes and lazy gluttons, but because of the gospel, they were to be different. They were to be known as being self-controlled, upright and godly. It's a vast difference. And that is a healthy church. Theology, lifestyle and Christian witness all rolled into one. That's the kind of church that we should be. That's the kind of Christian you should be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this uh, letter to the um, to Titus as he ministered to the church in Crete. Uh, we thank you, Father God, that uh, although written 2,000 years ago, it speaks volubly to us today. We pray for ourselves that we wouldn't be hypocrites, that we would be people whose uh, understanding of the gospel and your grace and mercy towards us uh, is lived out by the self-control that we exhibit in our lives and the love that we have for non-Christians. Uh, help us, Father God, to, uh, have, uh, to be holistic, uh, to be integrated uh, because uh, of what you have done for us. And help us to be used by you to powerfully impact on the lives of others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.